Welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it up. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. Hey, good morning. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, if you don't have a traditional Bible and you'd like one and you're comfortable, just raise your hand. One of my friends will bring you one that you can either borrow or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. You can also open the YouVersion app or the Bible app on your smart device and all the notes and scriptures have already been uploaded on that. Of course, we'll also put the scriptures and everything up on the screen behind me to make it as easy as possible. If you're watching us online or one of our other gatherings, I love you and so glad that you guys are a part of our community. Uh, At just about every wedding that you'll ever attend, you'll hear words like this. I promise to love you for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And it's so touching. It's so sweet, such a beautiful sentiment. Uh, But the problem for me is like every other groom who's ever rented a tux and wore shiny plastic shoes, when I promised that to Sonny, I thought the better would be awesome and that the worse wouldn't really be that bad. I didn't count on struggling for money or going to bed angry, losing jobs or miscarriages or standing at a graveside watching a tiny casket being lowered into the ground. Like so many people, uh, I didn't think that the for worse would actually happen to us. (laughs) I think most of us bank on some nice upsides and some minor setbacks. But unfortunately, that's not most of our story. And the more I read the scriptures, the more I see that that wasn't the author of Philippians' story either. The Apostle Paul who wrote this book, he didn't live in in some sort of utopia. The guy who wrote this book lived a life filled with massive highs and incredible lows. And so I want to wrap up this series today by showing you some of the parts of Paul's life that verify that when he wrote this book, he was not just blowing smoke. That the things that he writes about in Philippians are hard-earned truths. So let's talk about that today in a message that we're calling, Even If Jesus Is All I have. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for this day. This is the day that you have made. And so as cliche as it sounds, we will rejoice and we will be glad in it. That God, in our struggles and our strains, God, our difficulties and our desperation, God, in all of the problems that we have to wade through, God, through the highs and through the lows, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, God, we will love you. God, as we look challenges in the face, we will realize that you may be all we have, but you are all we need. And so today I pray for my friends in this place that our hearts and our minds will be changed, that when we leave here, we will be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we get in lockstep with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So I want to look at a passage today that contains one of the most famous scriptures in all of the book. Look look at what it says. Paul says, the Lord's filled me with joy because you again showed interest in me. You you were interested. uh, You just didn't have the opportunity to show it. 
I'm not saying this because I'm in any kind of need. I've learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in. I know how to live in poverty or prosperity. No matter what the situation, I've learned the secret of how to live when I'm full or when I'm hungry, when I have too much or when I have too little. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I think most of us can't even wrap our minds around what those verses are really saying. I mean, most of us know Philippians 4.13. It's kind of like a prerequisite to being a Jesus person. If you only know two scriptures, you typically know John 3.16 and Philippians 4.13. All you have to do is watch any sport on TV, and inevitably somebody in the crowd has a John 3.16 sign, and at least one of the players has Philippians 4.13, or they may have it Phil 4.13 written on their tape, on their shoes, or maybe even on their neck. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And it's a super comforting verse, isn't it? Or is it? The guy who wrote this, Paul, the apostle, he's such, he's such an interesting guy. I mean, like, I think I had heard a lot about him in the first 20 years of following Jesus. I heard a lot about Paul. I knew, I thought a lot about Paul. You know, you go to seminary. They teach you a lot about the people who wrote the book. They, they, they do kind of skim some of it, though. But I really feel like before COVID, I had a two-dimensional view of the person who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And then, and then as I began to really dive into the life of Paul, it just, something about him started to resonate with me. Like I really felt like if there was anybody in this book that I had a kindred spirit with, it was this guy. He's so interesting. He, he was a Roman citizen, but he was also a Jew, but he's not just your average run-of-the-mill, everyday, ordinary Jew. He has some serious Jewish cred. If you remember in Philippians 3.5, it says, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. And, and those dudes, we hear about those guys in the story of Jesus, and they kind of get a bum rap. But, but when, the word, when the words a Pharisee were written in his day, that would have jumped off the page to anybody who read it, because the Pharisees, they ran Jewish culture. And Paul, whose name incidentally was Saul, was one. He was a Pharisee. He learned their codes front to back. He knew Jewish law inside and out. He had distinguished himself as an up-and-comer. He's essentially a phenom. He was a first-round pick. He's from a successful, highly respected family. He's bold and aggressive. Anybody who is anybody in Jewish society would have known Saul. He's from Tarsus, so that tells us that he's a big city guy. He, he's a highly educated intellectual who is passionate and brilliant. He has basically developed the reputation of being the next big thing. He was literally in line to become the high priest of all priests within Judaism. After Jesus is crucified and apparently resurrected from the dead, you have this group of Jesus followers who had no regard for Saul or his fellow Pharisees who called themselves the way, who suddenly break out. And Saul is furious with the way that they perverted his religion of Judaism. And so he listens to one of them, a guy named Stephen, preach and teach that Jesus was, in fact, crucified and resurrected. And as he listens, he begins to burn with anger. And he's not alone. This huge crowd of people, they go crazy. They decide that they're going to kill Stephen before he can even finish his message. So they wrestle him down. They, they begin pummeling him with these huge rocks in an act of stoning. 
Apparently, some of the rock throwers aren't getting enough arm motion, so they take their jackets off. They hand them to Saul. And the book of Acts is very clear that Saul wholeheartedly approves of what's happening to Stephen. But it didn't have the effect that these rock throwers had hoped for. The Bible says that after Stephen's death, the, this new church, it begins to spread throughout the entire region. They leave Jerusalem and they preach Jesus everywhere that they go. And so, so Saul, he pursues them. He, he chases them so he can kill as many as possible. For Saul, killing Jesus people was his driving force. It was his, his life purpose. Eventually, he gets assigned to go to a city called Damascus. Word had gotten out that there were people who were preaching Jesus there. So Saul, he assembles this elite group of soldiers, and he heads there with a singular purpose. Kill them all. But on the way, Jesus hijacks Saul's plan. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? God has a way of hijacking our plans. He has a way of disrupting what it is that we think is important for us to do. And, and, and as he's journeying to Damascus, and it's famously called On the Road to Damascus, he has, a, he has an encounter. He experiences what's called the Christophany. And in theology, a Christophany is when Jesus appears in his resurrected form. And so Paul, or Saul, has this, this Christophany, is this, uh, this encounter with the resurrected Jesus who confronts him and the effect upon Saul isn't gentle. Jesus blinds him and, and then he speaks to him. Scripture says this. He said, Saul, Saul, which scripturally, anytime a name is repeated, it implies intimacy between the person who is saying it and the person who is hearing it. And so for, for Jesus to say, Saul, Saul, he is implying an intimacy with someone who is attacking him. And we see that a couple of times scripturally that God has this intimacy between people by repeating names. He does it with Abraham. He does it with Jacob. He does it with Moses. Jesus does it with Martha. Jesus does it from the cross to his father when he's hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And so many people have taught that as if the suffering were so deep that in Jesus' frustration, he was screaming out, my God, my God, why were you forsaking me? Really what Jesus was doing is Jesus was communicating, not just to the Father, but to everyone who was listening, that even in the most difficult times of his life, even in the deepest, darkest moments of his life, even in the worst pain and suffering of his life, he was not forsaking the relationship that he had with his Father, that everyone who heard that heard Jesus say, in spite of everything that I'm carrying, in spite of the weight, in spite of the burden, my God, my God, I love you and I want this relationship to continue, so Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> and Saul goes, who this? <laughs> and Jesus goes, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Can you imagine the impact that that had upon him? Can you imagine the, the, the blood draining from Saul's face as he's on his way to pursue people who are celebrating someone who he believed was dead and in the ground and suddenly was appearing to him in a resurrected form, in a Christophany, in a miracle, and communicating to him that the very thing he's about to go do is the one thing he shouldn't be doing. And yet he communicates it, Jesus, with this deep love and this deep relatability and this deep connection. Saul, bruh. Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? And so stalled, blinded, stumbles into the city, into Damascus. He finds his way to a man named Ananias, who God had already prepared. And I love the interaction between God and Ananias. Uh, Basically, God says to Ananias, uh, Saul of Tarsus is here. I want you to go heal him. (laughs) And so Ananias does what a lot of us do when God says something we don't like or that we don't want. He, he begins to try to remind God of things. Have you ever tried to remind God of something? Like you go, but bro, he's like, uh, uh, um, one thing. Uh, he's come to kill me and my friends. How about we not heal him? I like him blind and hurt. Has God ever told you to go and reach out to somebody and you're like, bro, I kind of like them the way that they are. I kind of like that they're going through the mess right now. I kind of like, they kind of, you know what? They deserve everything they're getting. Isn't it interesting how we think other people deserve everything they're getting, but we never think we do? We wring our hands at God and say, why, God, why? And God's like, bro, just two days ago, you were like, why not, God? Why not make them die in Jesus name. Then I said, no, bro, I like him the way that he is. But God's response to Ananias doesn't bode well for Paul's life going forward. He tells Ananias, no, I need you to go heal him because I'm going to show him and everyone else who ever reads about him, how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias obeys, he lays hands on him, he prays for him, scales fall from Saul's eyes, he gets his vision restored. Then Ananias baptizes him, preparing him to begin his new life of faith in Jesus. Saul becomes Paul. And Paul, he doesn't waste any time. He straight away preaches a sermon and he speaks with such brilliance that no one who hears it can argue with him. A bunch of people get saved, and all the Jesus people in Damascus, they rave about Paul, they celebrate him, they think he's the man. Paul's on his first high. Uh, But it didn't last long. By the end of Acts chapter 9, Paul's old friends, the guys he grew up with, the guys he went to school with, the guys he did life with, the guys who he built his entire life around, they all turn on him. His lifelong friends try to murder him. Paul went from high to low in the blink of an eye. So he flees Damascus, he goes to Jerusalem, but when he arrives, the Jesus people who are there, they won't receive him, they don't trust him, they're afraid of him, so not only has he been betrayed by his old friends, now he's being betrayed by his new friends. His his new friends won't have anything to do with him. Can you imagine how lonely Paul must have felt? Have you ever felt like you were doing the right thing for God, but you were the only one? You ever felt like you're the only one in your office, you're the only one at your school, you're the only one in your neighborhood? It's just... It's just such a, lon- such a lonely place to live. It can almost make you feel like, man, why don't I just go back to the way that it was? I used to have friends back then. We used to hang out. We used to do things. All my old friends, they're doing things on Instagram. They're hanging out. They're vacationing together. They got the, you know, the and suddenly you can want to feel like, is this whole thing really? I wonder how many times Paul wondered if what he's going through is really worth where he was going. Finally, a guy named Barnabas, he befriends him. Paul goes from low to high. Isn't it amazing what one relationship can do? 
Paul was totally alone. He was totally lonely. Man, Barnabas might not even have been the greatest dude, but it's amazing when you're lonely what one relationship can do, what one person can do, what one word can do, what one positivity can do, what one person speaking life over you can do. Have you ever thought about the impact that your words could have, the power of positivity that can come from deep within inside of you, that even in the midst of your darkest moments, you can speak life over people and change people's destiny, the power of the words that can come from the Spirit of God that liveth within you when you're in line at the grocery store and you can speak life over the person who's ringing you up. I was at festival not long ago, and, uh, and the lady who uh, was ringing me up, I, I don't know if they all have it, but she, she had a, a name tag that said how long she had been there. And it, it was, I, I'm picking this number off the top of my head, but I think I'm right. It was like, it was like 37 years. And I was like, I just looked at her and I said, you've been here for X amount of years? She goes, happily. I said, man, good on you. Congratulations. This place would not exist without you. You're probably the best. You are probably the best cash register person that this place had ever seen. And she, she suddenly, she went, she said, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> I said, you go, girl. I wanted, to, I wanted to dance right there in the middle of it, but then I remembered I don't have rhythm. And so it's amazing what one relationship, what one word can do. And so Barnabas comes into his life, and not long after this, this group of Greeks, they, they come and they have this huge debate with Paul about how the universe was created and how the universe functions. And Paul preaches the gospel to them. And again, he's so good. He's so intellectually powerful that he stumps them, that he totally shuts them down. And so they try to murder him. Instantly, Paul goes from high back down to low again. Now the Jews and the Greeks both want to kill him. So he and Barnabas, they go to Cyprus. And while he's in Cyprus, he's having this conversation with a brilliant seeker named Sergius. And while he's having the conversation, a demon-possessed guy named Bar-Jesus starts yelling, starts doing everything that he can to distract the conversation. That's what the enemy will like to do. Every time you're doing God's work, the enemy will try to send something to distract and derail you. And so for the first time in Paul's life, this goes from thinking to feeling. And so he, he rebukes Bar-Jesus. He casts the demon out and it leaves Bar-Jesus blind and mute. And when Sergius sees this, he becomes a Jesus follower. Paul is on another high. He then goes on to Lystra. And while he's there, he, he heals a crippled guy. And the people in the community lose their mind. They can't believe what they've seen. They freak out and they declare Paul and Barnabas to be gods. They call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And the priests in the town begin to make sacrifices in their honor. Paul, he tries to shut it down. He tries to correct them. But the Jews who are in town from Antioch and Iconium, they, they turn the crowd against them. And suddenly the crowd goes from thinking that they were gods to thinking they should be dead. And the crowd begins to pick up these huge stones and begins to pummel them with stones. Naturally, Paul thinks this is it. This is where I'm going to die. Because like he knows how this ends. Remember, he's been on the other end of a stoning. Falls to the ground. He crumples, covered in blood. The people think that they've killed him. And so they drag his body out of the city and throw it in the woods. Imagine this as if this happened. 
Imagine this as if this is not words on a page. Sometimes when we read scripture, it's so two-dimensional. It's so thin. But picture this in your mind. That Saul, who all he wanted to do was change lives. All he wanted to do was invest in people. All he was trying to do was love people. And to the very people that he was trying to reach, suddenly they turn on him and they, they, they think that he's dead and some guy reaches down and grabs his ankle and starts to drag him out of town. A buddy grabs the other hand and the other leg and they pick him up and they do the fireman thing and they throw him in the woods and they walk away. Like imagine that. Imagine somebody mistreating you in such a deep, dastardly, personal way. Somehow he survives. But he wakes up in the forest or the woods alone. No one's around, no friends, no a comedy. Like he just is suddenly at a massive low again. He eventually goes to Philippi. He, he reaches Philippi and as he's journeying, uh, he's empty. You ever felt like you're empty? You've given everything you got. You've tried all you can try. You said all the words. You went through the program. You walked out the steps. You submitted yourself. You're just empty. You served all you can serve. Made coffee, you held poopy butts in the nursery, you gave out high fives, you carried the buckets, you sang the songs, you played the instruments. You're just empty. Emptiness is a dangerous place to be. Somebody is going to fill the void with something. Paul was empty. See, it's hard for us to imagine our leaders as being empty. It's, uh, it's shocking. It's like when you find out your parents are real people who have emotions. Like when you, when you become grown. I think when you have your own kids, you realize how bad of a kid you were even when you thought you were a good kid. How empty your parents could have been so many times. How hard it was. How much of a struggle. And when you reach that reality, it's startling. And it's hard to imagine this guy, this giant of the faith, empty. And he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Outside of Jesus, there's been no more influential figure in the history of Christianity. He's empty. And he kind of like wanders into this town and he comes across something uh, unexpected. He really was going because he wanted to go to synagogue. He was going because he needed a word. You ever gone somewhere looking for a word? You thought it would come in one way, and, and suddenly he walks uh, up to this river, and uh, he stumbles upon a women's Bible study. <laughs> I think women's Bible studies are amazing, but it's not, uh, they don't usually welcome in beat-up, bruised, barren like dudes that walk up with blood on their face who were dead two days ago, you know, and I think the women were like, bro, get out, like, don't make me text my husband, <laughs> this is scary, and, and, and he, like, he walks in, and, uh, and while he's there, uh, he meets this, this woman named Lydia, 
And Lydia was one of the richest women in the world at the time. The Bible says that she was a purveyor of, of purple cloth. Uh, purple dye was so incredibly rare that it was one of the most expensive things in the world. And Lydia uh, was a baller. And so Paul leads her to Jesus. Isn't it interesting what God can do for you when you lay down your agenda and you allow him to lead you? Lydia literally changed the course of history. Lydia not only changed Paul's life forever, she changed our lives forever. She brings Paul, Silas, and Timothy back to her home and they live in her house. And with her wealth, y'all, this place must have been sick. California king bed, 2,000 thread count, Egyptian cotton sheets, down-filled pillows, personal chef. Well, good morning, Paul. He has a thing over his arm. Could I make you an omelet today? Would you like him? Oh, my bad. I forgot. You're just... Paul's being fed. He's got shelter. He's not in danger. A great church has begun. Paul is back on another high. Again, it doesn't last long. A race riot breaks out. Stuck in the middle of it, Paul gets arrested, tortured, and thrown in jail. He ends up in Thessalonica. And in true Pauline form, he wins people to Jesus. Lots of people. But the Jews there hate him. The church people hate him. Sometimes you're going to encounter church people who don't want change. You're going to encounter people who don't. You can't handle the truth. People who didn't want to. They've been living the same way their whole life. They've been doing the same thing with the same people, making the same mistakes, claiming one thing but living another. And you have a whole community of people who hated him, like church people, like seriously hated him. They hated him so much, they determined that they were going to follow him everywhere that he went. And it didn't matter what city he went to, they followed him. They never attacked him directly because that's what cowards do. They'll talk about you behind your back. They'll, uh, they'll put some sort of vague post on social that only you and the people who know you know is about you. They never attacked him directly, but they stir up the crowds. They agitate the people. People, they turn the people against them. They gather a mob. Everywhere Paul goes, these people push the mob to attack them. He goes to Athens. They follow him to Athens. So he goes to Corinth. They follow him to Corinth. But while he's in Corinth, tons of people come to Jesus and Paul is back on top. So he moves to Ephesus. And when he gets to Ephesus, God moves so powerfully that supernatural things begin to happen. People who just came into contact with his handkerchief or his apron, they're being healed. People are literally trying to steal his clothes. They're trying to wipe his clothes on their sicknesses. And it's working. Everyone is being healed. Eventually, the gospel penetrates the culture so deeply, it changes the entire economic climate. People are taking their idols and their books of spells and they're burning them. So many books are burned that the book of Acts declares the value at 50,000 days wage. The modern day equivalent is just over $11 million. The economy collapses. Nobody's buying idols or books of spells. So naturally the people who produce those items, they determine they're going to kill Paul. 40 men gather together and make an oath that they will not eat or drink another thing until Paul is dead. He hits another low. But he testifies without fear. 
And because he testifies without fear, he's arrested. And as they're taking him to Rome, he's testifying about Jesus the entire way. And while he's testifying, he's talking about his accusers. And, and as he's talking about his accusers, he begins to run down the list of lows in his life. He says, are they servants of Christ? Listen, I'm going to sound like a madman, but I'm a far better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, there's the daily pressure of my anxiety about all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? But listen to his perspective on his suffering. He says, but for the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So with that brief biographical overview. We see in Paul a man who begins life affluent and up and comer, the next big thing. But in his own words, he counts all of that as nothing. He counts all of that as meaningless and ends up living a life of hardship and pain on the run, enduring the lows that he just listed. So when he writes the words of Philippians chapter four, it gleams with deeper resonance against that backdrop. He's not writing while chilling at Lydia's house, eating steak and drinking Chardonnay. He's in prison. In fact, he's in the worst prison in the world. And so with that in mind, I want you to hold in your thoughts him being scourged, being scourged. This is when he said, I received the, the, the 40 lashes minus one. It's called a scourging. And we hear about it with Jesus, but we seldom get to really interpret in our mind what that meant, that, that it could be anywhere from three to 12 long leather lashes that were interlooped with sharpened pieces of pottery and sharpened pieces of bone. And the most aggressive executioners in the Roman empire were assigned to be scourgers. And so they would, they would take this whip and they were by law, they could only do 39 because they believed that if you got 40 lashes, you died. And so he would take his, his, his aim, and he would take an approach, and he would hit on the legs, and on the butt, and on the back, and on his shoulders, and the, and the, the, the straps of the whip would wrap around, and the shards of bone and pottery would catch on somebody's skin. They would, they would become in, inflicted into somebody's skin, stuck, and then the executioner would pull it back, and when he pulled it back, it would just rip, and it would tear. I want you to keep in your mind Paul being scourged, flesh and muscle being torn from his back, revealing the bone beneath. I want you to hold in your mind him struggling to keep his head above water, gasping for air as his ship sinks to the bottom of the sea. To hold in your mind his restless, sleepless nights while thugs scoured the streets searching for him, looking to murder him. To hold in your mind the image of his body crumpled on the ground, face pressed to the bloody dirt covering his head and body in a desperate attempt not to die underneath the seemingly unending barrage of stones. And with that in your mind, I want you to read this again. The Lord filled me with joy. Because you, again, you showed interest in me. You were interested, but you didn't have an opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in any kind of need. I've learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in. 
I know how to live in poverty or prosperity, no matter what the situation. I've learned the secret of how to live when I'm full and when I'm hungry, when I have too much and when I have too little. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Like, do you see now how Philippians 14, like it's not just about chasing your dreams, following your passions, accomplishing anything you want with God's help. It's the testimony of those like you and those like me and those like Paul who have found that Jesus is the only security and the only hope that we need, that we've centered our lives on him and him alone. And in a culture that is trying to press us out, in a culture that is trying to make us disappear, in a culture that is trying to make us and our values extinct, I have learned to be content when I have received everything I want and nothing I want. I can do either of those things by the power of Christ through highs or lows, for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health till death. Do us part. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Even if Jesus is all you have. Would you close your eyes all across this place? Even if Jesus is all you have. Some of you can't say that today because you don't have Jesus and he doesn't have you. You came in this place and you are disconnected from him. You are not in relationship with him. You know, in the church world, we talk about salvation. We talk about giving your life to Jesus, starting a relationship with him. And it's, sometimes it gets so lost in translation that really all it is is no matter what you've done, no matter where you've done it, no matter who you've done it with, no matter where you're going, there is a voice that's calling you. It's not calling you with malice. It's not calling you with judgment or condemnation. It's calling you with intimacy, saying, Jim, Jim, Sally, Sally, Robert, Robert, Anita, Anita, why are you persecuting me? Let's get connected. I wonder if you're here today and you say, I've not done that. I've not become connected. Jesus is all I need but I don't have them. We're gonna give you the opportunity to change that today, and here's how. In scripture, it says you have to do two things to become a part of God's family, to enter into a relationship with him. The first is called confession, and the second is profession. You have to confess that you have sin in your life, and then secondly, profess that you believe Jesus can change that. I wonder if you're here today and you say, Sean, I don't have Jesus in my life, but at some point during this service, whether it's during worship or during Pastor Sonny's prayer talk, you, you said, man, I could hear, I just felt it. There was something in my, my gut. He's been calling you. I wanna give you opportunity to do both of those things, to confess and profess. Here's how we're gonna do that. In just a moment, I'm gonna ask for people to do both of those things. Here's how. With nobody looking around, in just a minute, I'm going to ask for people to first raise their hand and make eye contact with me if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Once you've made eye contact, you can put your hand down. Secondly, uh, I'm going to pray a few lines in a prayer that I'm going to pause. And, and if when I pause, you repeat what I said and you mean it in your heart, 
the Bible says that you will be saved. You will enter into a relationship with him. Now, I'm not gonna ask you to say it alone. I'm gonna ask everyone in here, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, to repeat the words. And it's gonna be up to you whether or not those words change your life. Uh, so nobody looking around. If you're here today and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I want one before I go. Would you raise your hand and make eye contact right now? Thanks, 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 thanks. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay, I'm gonna ask everybody in here to say these words. Say, Jesus, I've got sin in my life. I don't want it. Please take it. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Change me. Make me different. Be my savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Secondly, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder if you're here and you say, I'm, I'm saved. I have a relationship with Jesus. Oh, but man, I'm going through it. And you're having a hard time keeping your head above water. Uh, if that's you, uh, I want to pray for you. So nobody look around. If you're in here and you are in the middle of a fight, a struggle, I want you to raise your hand with nobody look around so I can pray for you. Yes, yes, so many. God, for so many people, I pray for peace that surpasses all understanding, for joy unspeakable and filled with glory, for hope that cannot be described or compared. God, for my friends who are in this place right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would well up within them, God, and give them absolute peace. Take it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast, Chew on That. The Chew on That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week. Thank you.